You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season hosts Lisa Greenwood, co-host Tim Sorens, and special guests explore spiritual formation. What is formation and what is the church's role in formation? Join our email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi friends, I'm Lisa Greenwood, and joining me for our last episode this season is my beloved co-host, Tim Sorens. Hi, Lisa. So seeing as this is our final episode, we thought we'd do a little bit of recap, and Tim and I have each compiled three takeaways, if you will, and I'm excited to hear yours, Tim, and curious if we've named some similar things. We didn't practice this, so we're just going to do a little back and forth, and and so I'd love for you to start, Tim. Okay, well, here's... Here's maybe my first. This has been fun to think about. Uh, in all the different incredible guests we've had in this season, which of course has been such a joy, one of the things that has been coming up for me a couple different times is the power of collective discipleship. Essentially, that who we surround ourselves with in so many ways becomes our future. You know, uh, what's that line like? Most of us are essentially like the average of the five to 10 people we hang out with the most. I think the relationships that we keep determine so much of the, not just quality of life, but the kind of people that we're going to become. So thinking about that uh, theologically, strategically, what does it mean to be formed not just as an, an individual, but what does a collective discipleship look like? I feel like that's come about a number of times. How about you? What's, what's something you've been thinking about? Over and over again, and I'm laughing because the very first words in my little notes were the value of community, right? That we do not do this alone. So I'm laughing that, um, and maybe of course, this just stood out throughout. And, and in fact, even in our, um, in the conversation you're going to hear today with with Pastor Jay. So, but you know, one of the quotes that that I drew on and and that um, that is kind of I've been holding is from Ann Snyder, and and she says that we awaken to the deeper truths of things through dialogue, right? Through these mm-hmm. relationships, through this mm-hmm. conversation, um, you know, so not in isolation, but in dialogue. And then she goes further and says that institutions are the containers that allow us to experience that dialogue, even when those dialogues are discordant, right? And so so I would kind of layer that to say, throughout these conversations, I've been challenged and inspired by the the value of the institution, not not necessarily the structural organization of the church, but but the institution of religion and how it provides a container for us to engage in relationships that help us be formed and and shaped. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, as I've talked to different friends about various episodes, definitely one that has stuck out is the the power of institutions. We live in kind of an mm-hmm. age that's arguably increasingly anti-institutional, and there's understandable right. reasons for that. But I love the imagination of the institution as a container for the dialogues mm-hmm. that help us become who we're, we're yeah. meant to become. It's beautiful. Yeah. And if the container needs to be healed and shaped and reformed, then great. But let's not throw it out, <laughs> you know, uh, the whole of it, right? Or the purpose of it. Um, but but maybe we can reform and reshape and, Yeah. Okay, did you have another one? Okay, here's another one. And 
arguably, I feel like maybe I came in with this bias. So listeners will have to like, <laughs> I don't know if this is new. I feel like it got formed and shaped though. But I feel like another significant learning from so many of our guests is that the vacuum of formation is a myth. In other words, mm. we are always being formed as we've talked about. And we have to be aware of it that if we are always being formed, we have to be looking and thinking and you could say self-aware enough to know that if we're not leaning into some kind of, you could say, purpose of our own formation or thinking critically about it, longing for it, it will be filled with something else. And oftentimes those journeys take us in places that we don't necessarily want to go. So I guess mm -hmm. uh, I feel like so many of our, our guests, as they've talked about their lives, their stories, their neighborhoods, their ministries, have talked about how purposeful their whole life formation and discipleship has been. And I feel like that's kind of a, a really hopeful contrast to just hoping that things will work out or uh, it just feels strong and robust by being purposeful about our formation. Yeah, so uh, maybe it's not surprising that we have such similar things, but the, um, I, you know, maybe a nuance to difference, but similar, I in my thinking about this, just how important we live our everyday lives, like yeah. the decisions we make, the choices that we're making every day about, uh, is it a critical part of formation, right? That that we are being formed by all the things around us. And so it matters how we make decisions about how we're going to live our lives, including decisions about our stuff, our money, how we save and how we give and how we invest and how we spend and all of those sorts of things are, um, help form and shape us, right? Uh, where our treasure is there, our heart is also. In other words, our relationship with our stuff actually is forming and shaping us. But same with how we yes. choose to spend our time and with whom and how we talk with our kids and like all those daily activities are forming and shaping us. And that just came out over and over and over again in these conversations. Yeah, wasn't it yeah. fascinating how many times we talked about money, land, everyday practices? I didn't. Yeah. I guess I didn't expect that so much, even though the, those things matter to right. me, they matter to you. It was mm -hmm. interesting how they came out naturally as we, as we invited a conversation about formation. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the last one that I've been thinking about is something that is just kind of a, a, maybe a macro idea that felt like a gift that was teed up by most of our guests, if not all. And that is, you could argue kind of the theological question, I, but I would frame it more of like the narrative question, like the stories mm. that we tell ourselves mm. profoundly alter our formation. And in some ways are like the guideposts to, to where we're going. And, and I feel like our guests have done such a great job of being both Hopeful, certainly in this episode with Jonathan, mm -hmm. both really hopeful and also sober and critical about the stories we tell ourselves about who God is, what's happening in our neighborhoods, what's happening in our actual lives, yeah. having the courage to be honest with these stories. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like that matters a lot. The stories that we tell ourselves will determine our future. I, I was struck by in, in Lisa Miller's episode you know, she talks about the the rise of diseases of despair. I mean, she's not the only one, like it's all over the place, right? There's this rise in in depression and anxiety and isolation and and suicidality and and such that permeates our culture. And and so I was 
uh, just convicted and inspired to think about how valuable formation is in addressing diseases of despair and all the, the neuroscience behind that and the evidence. And, and I thought when we talk about being formed, you know, we're, we're, I mean, this, this is essential. This is critical. This is, this is not a side conversation. This is at the very heart of what it means to be you know, human and how we're being formed and and just related to what you just said, uh, the stories that we tell ourselves and how we embrace those, the encouraging ones that remind us that we're both beloved children of God versus maybe the stories that send us into those diseases of despair. And um, so it, it was just a reminder to me, like our work is really important in the church. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Yeah. Well, that's maybe uh, a good transition to talk about this incredible guest, huh? Yeah, really, for sure. And, you know, when we were first talking about guests, Tim, you immediately said we have got to get Jonathan. And so can you tell us a little bit about him and what what made you think of him for our theme of formation? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I think that uh, Pastor Jay, Jonathan Brooks, is one of, honestly, from what I've seen, and I've, I've been a, a handful of places, I've probably been in 300 neighborhoods in the last decade, I think that he's one of the most inspiring, godly leaders and pastors in this country. Mm-hmm. I have the great honor of working with him pretty much weekly. He's the board chair of the Parish Collective. He's become a very, very dear friend uh, to me. So I was like, when when we started to talk about this opportunity, I was like, we got to get past a J. Uh, and yeah. each of you will have a deep understanding of why. I feel like that was so important uh, in just a second. Yeah. But here's a little bit of his background. He's been a, a lifelong resident of Chicago, as you'll hear about. He's currently serving as a co-pastor of Lawndale Christian Community Church in the North Lawndale neighborhood of Chicago. We sometimes call him Pastor Jay. He actually talks about that. But Jay is an artist, community activist. He's contributed to all kinds of blogs and articles. And his book is actually called Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected Neighborhoods. He has a Bachelor of Architecture from Tuskegee University, a Master of Arts in wow. Teaching from National Lewis University, and a Master of Divinity from Northern Seminary with an emphasis in Christian community development. I mean, look at that. He is also married to Michelle Newman Brooks and his two beautiful children. And if folks want to learn more about him, probably the best place to dig into what he's up to is at pastaj.com, which is P-A-S-T-A-H-J.com. So with that introduction, Lisa, this is an incredible conversation. I'm curious as to what stood out to you about this incredible time we had together. Yeah, so, um, you know, first we hear all the themes that we've just talked about. We hear them in a very real and kind of gritty way with Jonathan. And 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 so, I mean, really what a great conversation to, to end our season with on, on formation. And I would say the thing that I'm walking away with is this, when he talked about formation, and, and you'll hear us talk about this, that he really compels us to start with our identity as as created by God, as as whole and good, and but also called forth, you know, and and but he also really he says we, we can't separate that from the notion that we are part of community. So you can't love neighbor without loving the neighborhood and understanding that we are part of each other. 
and that formation is is not about information as much as it is about claiming who we are and then being in relationship with one another. And and you'll hear that throughout. But I, uh, gosh, I, I just had chills so many times during this conversation. I can't wait for you all to hear. You're going to love it. Yeah. Let's listen to our conversation with Pastor Jay. Well, Pastor Jay, thank you for being with us today. What a treat. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And my man, Tim, what's up? Good to see you, Jay. It's been fun. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So as you know, this season is on the theme of spiritual formation. And I I'd like to start by inviting you to share some key moments in your own spiritual journey that have been particularly formative for you as a person and, and as a follower of Jesus. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I often tell people when this question might've been asked of me maybe 20 years ago, I probably would have specifically talked about like growing up in church as a, as a kid, because that was my main formation. So I grew up in black, missionary baptist you know group ebenezer missionary baptist church here in chicago which is actually the the uh birthplace of gospel music so thomas dorsey literally wrote precious lord at ebenezer so like i grew up with this i guess you could say kind of like this cross hatching of faith you know uh culture race as well as the arts kind of wrapping all of that together nice. and so that's been my main faith formation for a long time has been the arts are super important to me. Um, I cannot understand my faith apart from my own social location and context. Mm -hmm. And also just the the struggle of African Americans in this country has been kind of placed where my my faith has birthed from. But I also have to add now that I've, you know, now that I'm in ministry and I've done ministry for decades now, I'd also have to add this this understanding of how place impacts the way that you live out that theological framework or those 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 spaces you talked about like my social location and arts and all that and i really got to know the lord like became a strong christian so i grew up in church but you know i knew how to play the game i knew how to go to church and then do my own thing later right like i did that <laughs> as a kid but when i went to college i went to tuskegee university historically black college in tuskegee alabama uh, founded by Booker T. Washington in the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. And the school, it, it tapped all of those things I needed, right? Like it, it took me further into that conversation around my social location, around my cultural background, founded on faith. Um, and then also it pushed me to challenge the notion of only upward mobility as, uh, as an American. Mm -hmm. And because Booker T. Washington's thing was, you know, um, lifting the veil of ignorance off of the slave coming out of slavery and how we need to remain where we are in order to uh, build an economic base in the spaces rather than seeking to go somewhere for ourselves mm. and build something of our own and hope that everybody else could do the same. This thing was we've been working the ground. We've been building buildings. We've been educating ourselves. So the things that we should focus on is continuing to work the ground for ourselves, building buildings for ourselves, you know, educating ourselves 
not trying to fit into the dominant culture's understanding of what that means, but just continue to do what we've been doing. And, and so Tuskegee is still built on that. And so my faith and like my understanding of what my place in the world where we're being formed simultaneously in this space, both historically and currently, because uh, I was studying architecture at the time. And so I've always had a love for place. I always had a place, love for mm. design and creating and, and how that connected to land, right? Because it was, I was an architecture. So all of that made mm. sense. But then I started to begin to connect the framework of how God feels about land, how God feels about place, how God feels about how we use those spaces to, to bring him glory and to cultivate the kingdom of God on earth. And it was opening up the Bible and opening up my theological imagination in ways I had never done before just growing up in church. And so I always thought I was going to stay in the South, you know, continue to maybe work in architecture, mm -hmm. do some things around faith, all that. And then God just rewrote my whole story and <laughs> brought me back to Chicago, ended up pastoring at a church full of people who grew, you know, who knew me when I was growing up as a little kid, changed my diapers, you know, <laughs> the folks in my age group of people who hung with me when I was, before I was, you know, really serious about my faith. So it was, it wasn't a place to come back and hide and pretend to be anything. Uh, I had the freedom to be genuinely you know, Jay. And so, you know, even, even the, the moniker or the, or the nickname Pastor Jay is from like people being like, whoa, Jay? Jay is a pastor? <laughs> like, Jay? Pastor Jay? It was more, like, I should write it with a question mark after. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh -huh. that's really where it comes from. And so, like, it just stuck because everybody called me Jay when I was in the neighborhood. And then, you know, Pastor Jay. So it's really funny. Like, uh, I, uh, we'll talk probably about it later, but I wrote a book called Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected Neighborhoods. And one of my good friends, Amisho Lewis, known as Show Baraka, he's a Christian hip hop artist, with, has been with Reach Records, Humble Beast, you know, performer, Lecrae, doing all those things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He wrote the foreword. And the whole foreword, he's talking about John. You know, John was this guy who uh, in college I did. Da, da, da. And most people are like, who is John? I'm like, yeah. When I went to school, they called me John, but everybody at home called me Jay. So it's like all the people who know me from Tuskegee are like, who's Pastor Jay? You know? <laughs> so it's amazing how a name actually yeah. connects to your social location and your context and who, who people see you as. So yeah, all of these things become a framework. And I probably say the moment that, and I, I kind of start my book off with this moment that really changes that for me the most is becoming pastor of Canaan unexpectedly. The pastor basically just ups and leaves. One week, I'm like a youth worker at the church. The next week, I'm the pastor of the church. Mm -hmm. And the disorientation that comes from all of that. But then a few weeks later, um, on Mother's Day, I'm trying to preach and impress everybody and prove to them that I could actually handle this job as the pastor of this church that everybody knows me and, and I've grown up in. And and then um, while I'm getting up to preach, one of the young people in our church actually gets pulled out on the steps of the church and gets into a big melee with some guys in the neighborhood. Men in the church run outside. They start fighting. Um, a you know uh, One of my deacons is an off-duty police officer. In order for them to stop, he has to shoot in the air. Like All this happened. I've been pastor for all of like six weeks, yeah. and I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on or why this is acceptable. And as I walk back in the church, I mean, we lock the doors. We like, let's, let's just get this over with this Mother's Day church is packed people in suits and dresses and hats. Mm -hmm. It's a black mm -hmm. Baptist church, right? And I realized in that moment that, you know, what we were doing inside the four walls, you know, wasn't really 
going to be acceptable for church in this social location we were in. Mm -hmm. We were going to have to understand why our neighbors outside obviously didn't see the space we were in as sacred as we did, why they thought it was okay to handle something as small as a stolen cell phone in the manner they did on a Sunday morning while we were worshiping. Obviously, there's a disconnect between what we consider sacred and what they consider sacred. And from that moment on, I just was on the journey of how do I get our congregation at that time um, to really understand that, yeah, the great command tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. But the truth of the matter is loving your neighborhood is just as important as loving your neighbor. And mm -hmm. so I just began to push us in that way. And man, the rest is definitely history because I was 26 years old and 26-year-old Jonathan and now 43-year-old Jonathan are like, who the heck are these guys? And uh, it's been quite a journey. But that, I would say that's that's been the, the most impactful moment, even still to this day, that I've had in neighborhood as a pastor. It's incredible, isn't it, Lisa? Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, I wonder if you could, I, I appreciate you uh, dropping that title church forsaken. I want to underline that for all of our <laughs> listeners. Absolutely. Go grab it. It's a really, really important book. And I, I want to, as a springboard, I think folks knowing some of the story is, is going to help. But if you could kind of, in a sense, kind of climb up a little bit higher in the balcony, why that title, Church Forsaken? Yeah. Or, like, maybe just keep telling the story. Where where the title come from exactly? Absolutely. What does it have to say today? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it it is about a climb, you know, a little bit higher into the story of where the title comes from. Because what I began to realize when you grow up in, especially in inner city urban contexts, like the church as an institution is extremely visible, right? There's a church building on every corner, right? Every storefront <laughs> is is full of little small congregations trying to have an impact in people's lives, right? But what tends to happen is because the church often turns inwardly on itself for most of its um, effect, although I will say, and this is something I've learned even since writing the book, I think every single one of those little churches has some kind of external impact, whether they're helping kids go to college, they're doing something that's going to embrace like some family that's struggling, they, they do things that on holidays and they have some kind of external impact, which I think I would have done, a, I wish I would have done a better job of, of highlighting in my book. Hmm. But what typically happens is because most of their the pastors are bivocational, congregations are small. This is just a building for them to gather in. They typically end up being buildings that are gathered in on a Sunday and maybe once a week at like a midweek service or a Bible study. And so all week long, what the community sees out of the buildings, even if that's not the heart of the congregation, is this locked up building with gates covering it that just doesn't look welcoming and doesn't look engaged in the community at all. Yeah. And so this idea of church forsaken is, is that often communities like North Lawndale or West Inglewood, where I was before, are looked at as places people want to escape. So I talked a little bit earlier about having this, this narrative of upward mobility, right? Like to be successful is to move away from this place, to go somewhere else. This is a place to survive in, not thrive, right? A place to escape, not invest. And so churches often perpetuate their narrative 
even with the gospel, the gospel being about upward mobility and going to the next thing. And if, and if you trust God, God will take you out of here. So the language that I always heard was, you know, oh, I hope you, you know, go to college and get out of here or, you know, play sports, you know, do music, whatever your thing is, you know, sell drugs on the corner, whatever your thing is, mm. it's for the same purpose is to get out of here. Like I live here now, but if I hit the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is buy a house somewhere else and get out of here because this is a place to escape. And what that breeds is this attitude of continual disinvestment because the best leaders, those who are, you know, creative, imaginative leaders, they're the first ones to leave. And that just leaves you with what I call leadership drain. People who usually live in a community because they have nowhere else to go versus people who live here because there's no other place they'd rather be. And so this idea of church forsaken was, well, I actually disagree. I don't think that God has forsaken my neighborhood. I think God is alive and well in my community. And, 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 you know, if you, if you come closer to it, you would be able to see that. If you, if you reside here versus just driving through here, you would see how powerful and impactful the kingdom of God is, the people of God are, and what God is doing here. But my issue is, is that there is still disinvestment. There is still, mm-hmm. right, like greater ills and greater social. So what does that mean? Like if God is actually here residing, then where's the disconnect? Why isn't the kingdom of God being exemplified the way that God desires it here? And that's where the title comes in, is that I don't actually think that there mm-hmm. are ever any God forsaken places but there are church forsaken places because it is the church that has decided to take our gifts, talents, all that God gives us our power and and reside in more comfortable spaces (laughs) as if comfort is a kingdom value at all. Right. Actually, I think Jesus kind of pushes us towards uncomfortability, you know, with crazy lines like, Hey, you want to follow me? Just pick up your cross, deny yourself. You know, (laughs) Um, there's not a lot of language in the scriptures about us seeking comfort. As a matter of fact, when Jesus leaves, because he doesn't expect his disciples to be comfortable, before the ascension, his exact words are, I'm going to send you a comforter because things are not going to be comfortable from this point on, but I promise to be with you until the end of the age. And so I think it's a challenge to the church to move towards suffering to move towards places where we've typically abandoned and recognize that there are no God forsaken places, just church forsaken places. If the church mm-hmm. begins to invest back into the places that we've uh, divested in and ran away from, we might actually see the kingdom of God begin to show itself on the earth in ways that we've never seen before. So that's what the book is about. That's the challenge. And uh, it's been pretty well received. I think a lot of people are rethinking the way they think about kingdom presence from the book. Yeah. Well, this is powerful. I, I mean, just the the shift in perspective from thinking, you know, that this place is hard and therefore we need to figure out how to get out to this place is hard, yes, and there's giftedness, there are assets, there's kingdom work happening, the Holy Spirit is here. How do we not disinvest, but actually deeply invest? So, I mean, you say it in your in the subtitle, but I'm I'm really curious about 
you know, if you could say some some mm-hmm. more about what it means to practice presence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing up the subtitle. The subtitle was actually the most important part of the, the book for me. We went back and forth, my publisher and I, with this title mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and even more with this subtitle mm-hmm. because I refused for the language to make the neighborhoods themselves the victims. And I also refuse for the language to be passive versus active, right? There is something to be done about this, about what we see, right? And so this idea of practicing presence actually is at the core of the book that like once you unveil what's actually in these spaces, the beauty of them, the the, the way that they actually exist, even though we've had an, an incomplete narrative about them. The question becomes, okay, well, what do we do? That's always the question I get every single time I speak. And I go, it begins with changing the practices that we've done so far. So, you know, I actually tell people to reside where you don't want to be. It's actually literally moving, right? Like, literally, like, I don't, I don't, I don't shy away from saying that some of us need to move. I actually push uh, people of color, especially who've left their communities to come back to them mm-hmm. versus people who've never lived in inner city community or something like that moving in. Right. Because this brings a whole other conversation around gentrification and all those other things. Right. But I want people who've left here thinking I, I finally succeeded to recognize that success does not equal abandonment. Um, so I, I reside where you don't want to be, right? Return. These are some of the practices. Return to previously forsaken places. These are the things that I try to challenge people. So this idea of presence as an active thing, even if you can't physically move, so you bought a house somewhere else, you don't have the equity to move, you can't, right? Presence is an active thing. How do you become more integrally tied into this community? What's going on? How can you be a part of of seeing, partnering with people who are there, investing in folks who are there, doing things that actually make you present in that neighborhood in ways that you haven't been before? And so I just try to run the book of Okay, let's look at what the disconnect is, right? The disconnect might be that we, you know, one of the disconnects is that we only see people through the lens of spiritual lenses, right? So um, we start sharing the gospel and talk about saving souls versus whole embodied people. (laughs) And so I say we need to reconnect, is the practice because of that, reconnect to the whole gospel, Right. So now you have to start thinking about the fact that God is intimately concerned with where people eat, what people eat, where they live, right? Like how they're educated, just as much as whether or not their soul will spend eternity in heaven. Right. That that's those things are not mutually exclusive, and neither is one more important than the other. God does not want us to live in horrible hell on earth so that one day we can experience heaven, right? Like that's not the call. Jesus literally says the opposite in John 10, 10. He says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly because the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? So mm. my goal is that your life is actually abundant while you're here. And so I, I I, just try to challenge people to recognize that once your eyes have been opened, right? Once you've put on your bifocals, Tim, once you, once you recognize <laughs> and see the world differently, now there's action that has to be done. Mm. And those actions are uncomfortable. They're not your first mind. That's why the kingdom is upside down, right? Because mm. typically what we want to do is the opposite of what the Lord is actually 
guiding us to do in the spirit is is pushing us towards. Precisely because we are seeking comfort, right? Exactly. That's <laughs> yes. it. That's, That's right. it. I actually, Jay, could you could you tell folks about kind of the bifocal metaphor? I think it's really powerful, and I think it's pretty it's pretty applicable for pretty much everybody listening. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do anyway. So yeah, this this idea. So the last chapter of the book, I always tell people, if I was to rewrite my book, I would move this to the beginning because most people mm. never get to the end of your book. So this <laughs> is, you know, so I, I, I share this at the end of the book, kind of in, in this framework of, of what it looks like for us to see the world the way God does. But this idea of the lenses we wear actually color the way we see the world. And so I always use my own life as an example. I grew up in the city of Chicago and everything about my life and the narrative I was fed was about getting to the suburban areas outside of Chicago as like this great gift. Like you do that and you made it, you know? Mm. And so when I had the opportunity to go like to that place, because my narrative had been colored that way, I would literally see what I wanted to see there. I had on a pair of glasses. I wear my glasses wear, so it's easy, right? And I called them the glory of God glasses. And I would go to suburban places and I put on my glory of God glasses, slide them over my nose and go, oh, it's so beautiful here. Look, everybody's grass is the same height. How do they do that? Yo, look at these beautiful houses with two-car garages and valences in the window. And I bet it's the perfect family inside. You know, two and a half kids and a dog. Oh, look, you hear that? It's so quiet here. All oh, the glory of God is in this place. God, give me the opportunity. Thank you for allowing me to see what the glory of God looks like. Right? That's attitude I had in the summer. But conveniently, when it was time to go back home. I had another pair of glasses to put on. And those are what I call the brokenness of humanity glasses. Mm. These are the same glasses they often give to little kids going on missions trips coming to neighborhoods like mine. Make sure you put on these brokenness of God, brokenness of humanity glasses. And they put it on and they come and you go, oh my God. Oh, it's so broken here. Oh, look, there's trash all on the ground. God, why can't the people pick up their own trash? Oh, God, there's so much violence and pain. I heard the kids don't have fathers and the schools are bad. And Oh, God, we just need to we need, we need to do something with these children. You know, quick, give me some face paint and a jump rope so I can make these kids day. You know, that type of thing. Right. And, oh, it's so loud here and sirens and God, let your glory fall in this place. That becomes a prayer there. You know, it's like, look, I'll give you the truth. The truth of the matter is that you need to take both of those lenses, smash them up, pull a Benjamin Franklin and make some bifocals, put them together. Because the truth of the matter is every person and every place both displays the glory of God and the brokenness of humanity. If we can't see one or the other, there's nothing wrong with the place of the person. There's something wrong with the lenses we're wearing. Mm -hmm. And I try to challenge people that if we actually saw the world the way God does, then we would, there would be no place we couldn't reside. There'd be no place we couldn't dwell because we know that the power of God is there and the brokenness of humanity is there. So what we typically do is just take one or the other and completely magnify that so that that becomes the dominant narrative for that space or that person, right? So the suburbs, because people have a little more access to, to 
narrative changing methods, right? And mm-hmm. and control over who allows that narrative to be disseminated and all that. They can hide the brokenness behind those valences and two-car garages and all mm-hmm. that, right? But it's still there and then make their dominant narrative one of glory. Whereas in inner city spaces where we have less access to kind of narrative shifting influences and power and all that, what happens is the negative things, those things that are broken become the dominant narrative and all the beauty and all the glory of God is hidden Mm -hmm. there. So what Mm -hmm. I say is, is that we have to, as Christians, be the ones to say, no, when God drives through North Lawndale, he doesn't turn his nose up and go, oh, they need to get it together here. He sees the grandmother raising three generations of children, like on Mm -hmm. a crumb income, following God, praying every night in her closet, saying, Lord, you will make a way. God knows that that's what's happening in my neighborhood and therefore sees Lawndale as a place where God's spirit is dwelling, working, and people are doing goodness. And he also drives through the suburban areas going, I'm so frustrated at that family dynamic, that father who's never home because he's so busy trying to make money later. You know, like he knows, he knows. We are the ones mm-hmm. that are damaging the spaces and places and people in certain places. So, you know, when I get the question, well, what does that mean for me practically? It means if you live in a space where the dominant narrative is that it's beautiful, you as a Christian have a godly responsibility to expose the brokenness. Mm -hmm. And if you live in a place where negativity and brokenness is a dominant narrative, you have a biblical and godly responsibility to lift up the beauty there, Mm -hmm. right? So that people can see both ends. That's the only way you really walk in. So I tell people every morning when you wake up and your feet hit the floor, the first thing you must do is put on your bifocals so you can see the world the way God does. If we don't do that, we'll continue to perpetuate broken narratives that will cause people to have an incomplete understanding of the world God created and what we as Christians are supposed to do about it. Wow. Wow. That is powerful and challenging and beautiful. And, you know, I think about we are constantly challenging ourselves and inviting others to have eyes to see the ways that the Holy Spirit is at work. And, and, and so often we equate that. I mean, you know, in our culture, like, and this is what I'm hearing you say, we uh, equate the glory of God with some um, distorted sense of, and I'm using air quotes here of perfection and what Mm. it's quote unquote supposed to look like when in fact the glory of God is is beautiful and messy and imperfect and found in all those places, right? I mean, two-car garages and and manicured lawns are not the glory of God, right? Preach, preach, <laughs> right? sister, preach. Ah, so thank you for you know your words and your witness and and uh, yeah, yeah. So I want to take that and this challenge that you've offered us to say, loving neighbor, like truly loving neighbor as self really can't happen or doesn't happen if you're not truly loving neighborhood and space and all that that means, right? right. So bring that back to us, to for us, to this notion of formation and how we're formed and um, how we're formed spiritually and what's the connection in that, you know, in, in this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what it does is, is it, it begins to change our starting point for formation, mm. right? Rather than our, our starting point being, you know, what I consider to be this kind of like ethereal understanding of 
theological or doctrinal spaces and memorizing scripture and this will form me and all that. It actually begins with like what God commanded us from the very beginning. It begins with our understanding of our place in the created world and all mm -hmm. that it is. It begins with the garden. It begins in Genesis. Mm -hmm. So it begins with us understanding like when God says from the very beginning, hey, I need you guys to be fruitful, multiply. I need you to have dominion over the world. I need you to guide and honor the way that I've created the world in the way that it is in the way that you follow me. When we don't do that, we actually stunt the formation of God in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so that means that space, place, animals, creation, people, mm -hmm. like all of these things become central to our formation as Christians. And so discipleship is no longer around like learning a set of precepts and tenets as much as it is an experience in the created world that God has given us that allows us to see ourselves in light of who God is and helps us to see the world in light of how God has created it. So when I say formation, I'm not talking about like, let's sit down and have a discipleship group. I don't think that's bad. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's incomplete. I think unless we do that in the context of understanding, so tell me about yourself. Tell me how you grew up. What was your family dynamics? What's the social context you grew in? What do you value? Why do you value those things? These kinds of questions get us at the root of how people understand their relationship to God, their relationship to the church, and how they've been formed prior to our little whatever set of rules we want to create for formation. So I always say formation actually happens in relationship and in geograph geographical place. So I guess a, a, a great example would be, right, like for me, when I think of discipleship or I think of formation, I think of, okay, let's live in proximity to one another. Let's spend time, not just, you know, Tim will smile, not just at the, in the steeple, right? Not just at the church, right? Not just at the temple, but also at the table together. Let's eat together. Let's, let's, let's struggle together. Let's raise our children together. Let's, right? Let's do all of it. And in that, we begin to see how God is forming a real Christian community. Because when you look at what formation looked like for the early church, it literally was Acts 2, like this, this notion of them going to the temple together, eating together, right? Like uh, reading the scriptures together, praying together, you know, like sharing all their resources together. It is literally that. And then people on the outside, what they say, Tim? We like what we see. Like that's, that's pretty right. dope. Yep. Day by day. <laughs> day by day. In the temple. Day by day. At the table. Day by day. Sharing. It's not this let's gather once a week or let's gather around some principle. It's let's gather around where we live, our geographic location. Let's do life together and watch what the Holy Spirit does in that proximity to one another. Mm. So it's just a different way and a different starting point. You know, it is a starting point that God has already created things to go the way God wants them to go. And if we as Christians live together, love together, learn together, and then trust the Holy Spirit to like lead us and guide us in how we should live, man, it'll form something that we could never form on our own with our little patterns and 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 discipleship plans and formation plans, you know? So it's more organic. We have less control mm -hmm. over it. Doesn't that just sound like God? And, yes. Um, <laughs> And it's and it's actually more beautiful than anything we could create on our own. Yeah. Yes. 
So I want to pull on a couple of things and see if I'm hearing this in the way that you mean it. Because, you know, when you said, when I talk about formation, I'm, I'm talking about where we start. And you say, going back to the starting place. And what I hear in that is, you know, God created us and called us good. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which we start from the place of our identity, which is beloved children of God. And that in in that identity is also a calling to live as beloved children of God. And so there's this identity piece. And, and I would say, I mean, part of this, the brokenness of humanity is getting disconnected from that yes. place of yes. understanding that actually we're loved and we're valuable and that God has created us and loves us and has blessed us and calls us forth to live as if we are loved, right? And and when we get disconnected from that, we and we start behaving differently as if mm-hmm. we are not mm-hmm. beloved. Mm-hmm. And and I I love that. So then formation is not about information. It's actually about claiming who we are as beloved children of God. So is that I mean is exactly I'm using it. different language, that's but exactly that's it. exactly it. No, no, no. It's exactly it, right? I you know, for me one of the things that you said there that 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 rung a bell for me is not only did God call us good and 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 give us dominion and all those things, but then made the specific statement that it's not good for you to be alone. Yes, that's you know? the next thing I was going to say is we need, don't do this isolation need community. And so what happens for us as Christians is we claim all of those things you said, but we claim them individually. God says, I'm good. Jesus is my personal savior. God wants me to be happy and comfortable. Like we do that mm-hmm. versus recognizing that God said, no, you're, it's not good when you're alone. Actually, it's more detrimental for you if you only think about things um, in an individualistic manner. So unless you think about it communally, you can't even understand really what I've got for you and what I've created for you. And yes. so that's the other part of it. And that's why loving neighborhood actually becomes central to what it means mm-hmm. to love your neighbor. Yeah. Because then you'll make different decisions because your decisions aren't only about what's most comfortable for you or what's most beneficial for you. It begins, how do I look out for kingdom values for all of us who nice. live in this space together? So, yeah, I just think. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. I have circled and starred in you know <laughs> community and relationships in my notes listening to you. Um, talk about this because I, I think we can't extricate that. Yes, our starting place is we are beloved children of God, but we are are not intended to be on this journey of life alone in isolation, right? It's all about community and connectedness and relationship and being around the table and breaking bread together and caring for our neighbor and for the common good of our of our parish, our neighborhood, our our family, our yes, anyway, That's right. uh, beautiful. Yeah. It also is worth, I think, underscoring that when we believe that we can live above place, that we don't have bodies, that we aren't dependent on others, that narrative, which can feel alluring for a second, actually always harms us in the end. Mm-hmm. So I love the call to, when we, when we talk about formation, we're talking about our whole life, our whole bodies, our whole neighborhoods because that's how we were created. It's actually an escape that doesn't ever help us to think that we can kind of exist above place, exist without others. That's actually a, it's a story that's arguably doing so much harm to us as individuals. You can argue that is the actual root 
of massive systemic problems like mm -hmm. climate change and isolation and loneliness mm -hmm. you can make a good case for that's like at the root of racial discrimination i mean these this is not just like a, a right. cute spirit formation little you know that's right uh conversation this is big this is yeah. massive and so there's a lot at stake if we can't recover what it means to be formed in bodies in real places yeah as we think about what it means to be human created mm -hmm. people and and that's the danger in thinking that you know, those major societal issues that are all about dividing us are just like, oh, they're issues we need to work on versus like systemic sin, right? They are yes. against the will of God. They, they are massacring God's kingdom in the world, right? That, and that's the way to think about them because mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. Tim just said. Like when we, when we only minimize it as, oh, yeah, that, you know, that's an aside to the gospel, right? Like, or we need to, you know, yeah, it's bad when people are treated bad because of their race or gender or, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's a massacre of the, the image of God in a person. That's a, you know, that's why I love like Jesus's uh, parable of the good, the good Samaritan, right? Like the question of who is my neighbor props that. Mm -hmm. Right. Because Jesus is trying to get at the root of, okay, I'm cool with this whole, like, be at the table with people and eat, but I want to choose and select who that is, right? Like Jesus is like, nope, you don't even get to choose and select who that is. It could be the person you have the least in common with, the last person you ever expect to stop and help you. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor could be anybody walking down that road that you would never expect them to be. And you're still supposed to be at the table doing life, walking with, loving, mm -hmm. right? And so he gets right at the root of everything that we try to do to divide ourselves, you know, yeah. just like, no. Everybody's your neighbor. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Our listeners are largely clergy and, and lay leaders in local congregations and, and leaders in denominations and such. And, and these are hard days for all the reasons we've named. And, and doing this work of loving neighbor, but also loving neighborhood and in, in this culture and driving toward community and belovedness in, in this culture is is really the alternative narrative as as Brigamon reminds us and mm -hmm. and I wonder if you have a word of encouragement hope for these leaders in the mm. in the church today amen amen well i'll I'll begin by saying the days that we've experienced over the last three years as tough as they have been to all my fellow brothers and sisters doing this work. Mm -hmm. All my siblings in the spirit, no matter what, like, mm. listen to this. As hard as it's been, it has reinforced everything that we believe. Mm. It has reinforced that isolation is damaging. It has reinforced that highlighting the differences and allowing that to be what we guide is detrimental, right? It has highlighted that when we focus our resources and heart and passion on things that divide us versus things that bring us together, it causes harm. So what we're preaching, what we're living, mm -hmm. what we're embodying has only been affirmed for the last mm -hmm. three years, as hard as it's been to endure it. So I would encourage you, preach with power, love in ways you never have, mm -hmm. because you have the reality of the last three years as 
as your like your wind behind you pushing you forward. Nobody's gonna disagree that they that that isolation was terrible, right? That no one's gonna disagree that that being trapped in your homes or or watching people uh, uh, like like lie on the ground with knees on their neck and all these things weren't damaging for the last three years. So you have the privilege of having that. So I encourage you, preach, preach with power, teach with power, love in ways that you've never had. Mm. Don't give up. Allow the truth of what we've experienced to be the wind that blows you forward. And I'll say this, which I've been saying a lot lately. When Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and the seas begin to shake and rattle and roll and Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat, what Jesus says to his disciples is the one thing I want you to recognize. He looks up at them and basically is confused because he says, I'm still on the boat. I'm asleep because I know I'm on the boat. And so I'll tell you, I can look around and tell you that all is not well. You are not well. Things are not well. Mentally, people are not well. Physically, people are not well. Spiritually, people are not well. But what Jesus understood on that boat is because he was on the boat, it is well, even mm -hmm. if I am not well. And so even if you're not well, if your congregation is not well, if your ministry is not well, if your denomination is not well, it is well because Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Stay on the boat, stay motivated, allow mm -hmm. the wind to be behind your back and keep going forward because I can promise you this much, we got victory. May it be so. Woohoo! <laughs> Pastor Jay, you are a gift. This is amazing. Told you. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yes. Thank you, Tim. Uh, um, okay. So we're asking all of our guests this season one final question, and that is, what is one way that you are being formed right now in your life and what difference is it making for you? Yeah. I literally was talking about this yesterday. This is great. I have shared, understood, and preached, I think, cerebrally the notion of joy mm -hmm. um, versus happiness. I have been through a very difficult season the last three months between trying to understand, you know, my whole family's everything has shifted for us. Like we're in a new neighborhood, new church, new ministry, mm -hmm. kids are in different seasons, all that stuff. My mom's not doing well physically. We had a lot of loss in our family over the holidays. Like, you know, things are difficult. It's been hard. And yet every day that I wake up to do what God has called me to do, even if I don't want to go, like there's days I don't even want to get up out of bed. Mm -hmm. Once I get going, I'm like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I've understood that joy cerebrally was not about happiness, right? Like you can have joy regardless of what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I would say in my life where I really feel embodied this idea of things are hard. Things are not going the way I thought they would. It's difficult stuff. And yet I feel joy in my soul to be able to love, walk my neighborhood, help people, people help me, all the things, even though it's hard. Like, I'm not always able to smile. I'm not always happy. But boy, do I know that this is what God created me to do. And therefore, I have joy. So I'll just say that is forming me in ways I never have been before. That joy is not something I just understand in my mind. It's something I'm experiencing in my body. And I hope that people get an opportunity, whatever season they're in, to experience the real joy of the Lord that is not contingent on things being great around you, but that you're still doing what God has called you to do, wired you to do, and therefore you can feel joy in the midst of a lot of suffering. So. Beautiful. And a, and a good word, a good word mm -hmm. of hope and encouragement there too. Well, blessings on you, 
Pastor Jay, on your Blessings. ministry. Thank you. Blessings. And thank you so much for being with us. I'm, I'm inspired and encouraged. <laughs> thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.